Good morning, everyone. For those of you who I have not had the chance to meet, my name is Caleb, and I'm the pastor at Cross of Life. And during the first part of our year, every year, we study one of the Gospels to hear the story of Jesus, the words and works of our Savior, to focus our lives as we go into another year on the centerpiece of our faith. And so this year, we're continuing our study of the book of Luke. We're looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. And we're going to look at two religious errors. Um, I put the words religious in quotation because what we're going to see are two things that, at least on the outside, look like they are good religious behavior, but actually Jesus is going to show us they are undercutting the gospel, that those errors actually lead to a rejection of what Jesus has won for us. So I'll read the text for us. If you have a note sheet, you can follow along there. If you did not grab one, there should be some on the back table, and there's no shame in getting up and grabbing one. When Jesus had finished speaking... A Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you uh, build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been, has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge, You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is the gospel of the Lord. So I said we're studying two religious errors, but those two religious errors really fit under one big umbrella, one big problem. And if you're filling in blanks on your note sheet, that's our first fill in the blank for today. The big problem that we're taking on is legalism. Legalism. Um, What is legalism? I would define it as life according to the rules. Life according to the rules. Legalism is what every person naturally does. They desire to see themselves as good, and so they set up a system of rules that they can achieve in order to check the box and say, I am a good person. 
Now, if you're familiar with the term legalism at all, you probably have heard it in a moral or religious context. And that's true enough, and that's where the text is going to lead us today. But I want us to think about legalism in a far more broad way because, well, frankly, it does apply more broadly. Rather than only seeing legalism applied to our moral or religious faith, I want us to think of it in these five ways. That we can be legalistic morally, familially, socially, culturally, and personally. What do I mean by that? Well, morally, we can be legalist as we live according to the rules in our religious faith or our moral ideals. That if I just do the good things that my imam or my priest or my rabbi or my pastor has said, then I will be a good person. But we can do the same thing familially. If our family has a set of rules for what it means to be a good person, if we live by those rules, we are being legalistic. So whatever that means for your family, our family is this kind of family. We do these things. This is how we get a job or we get married or we have kids or we whatever. The expectations of our parents usually, but also our greater family, those rules, if we live by them, we are living legalistically. We can do the same thing socially with the people that we hang out with, the expectations of our friends, of our boss, of our neighbors, of the type of person that we should be. They have a set of rules for what that looks like. They talk this way, they do these things, they show up for these things. It can be cultural. Not any one specific person is saying it, but you just kind of get the sense. Maybe it's from the things you see on TV or on your phone. Maybe it's just because of your ethnic background. You expect that you're supposed to live a certain way. You have a set of rules, and if you live by them, You're living legalistically. And finally, personally, we all just have standards for ourselves. The ways that we think we're supposed to live. The ways that we can look ourselves in the eye, in the mirror, and say, you're doing okay. And those are going to be different for every single person. But if we live our life according to those rules, we are being legalistic. And there is arguably nothing that Jesus is more allergic to than that. I mean, did you hear the text? If you like snuggly, lamb-cuddling Jesus, you were very uncomfortable with that text because Jesus was on blast against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He was taking no prisoners. He was letting them have it. And that should tell us something, that this is a big deal to Jesus. And therefore, it ought to also be a big deal to us that living according to the rules is actually undercutting something really important about who Jesus is and what he says. Now, if you're a thinking person, you might already be coming to the conclusion, well, are you then saying, and is Jesus going to say, that the rules don't matter? We'll get there. The answer is, kinda. And that's why they killed him. Because he said stuff like this, you saw it at the very end of the text, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started trying to catch him fiercely because he was preaching a message that was so counter the way that we naturally think, the way that we naturally find our value, that they couldn't stand it. And so if what Jesus says makes you a little bit uncomfortable today, good. That's what he's going for. He's identifying a natural bent in every single one of us to want to live according to the rules to find our purpose and our value in whatever the standard is and getting as close to it as we possibly can. 
Now, legalism has a couple different forms, and those are the two points on your notes sheet, that it has selective law and undue burdens. And we're going to see those manifested in each of the groups that Jesus is talking to. First, as he speaks to the Pharisees, he's going to talk about being selective about the law. And when he talks to the teachers of the law, the experts, he's going to talk about undue burdens. So that's where we're going. Let's start with selective law. The text starts this way. Jesus is invited to eat with a Pharisee, but when he gets to the meal, the Pharisee is surprised that Jesus does not wash before the meal. And for some of you who are a little bit nervous around germs, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, man, I know you're the son of God and everything, but take a moment and wash your hands. But that's not really what was happening here. Uh, To back up a couple thousand years, when God gave the law, he said that the nation of Israel, his people, were going to be completely distinct and separate from every other nation on earth. And he gave them a whole bunch of rules, laws, for them to follow in order to make them unique, to make them stand out from all the other people. And we're not going to go through those laws because, frankly, they don't actually apply here. What happened was, over time, those Israelites took God's laws and they added some extra things on top of it. And that's not necessarily bad. In fact, it can be really good to take God's principles and figure out ways to specifically apply them in your life. One of those ways was a ceremonial washing that the Jews would do before they would eat. So the idea is they were out in the marketplace, they were out with the rabble, the everybody, the Gentiles, and they would come back into their home, their people, and they would ceremonially wash their hands as if to symbolically say, we have nothing to do with that. We are clean from that dirtiness of the world. Fine enough. Except that it became a religious expectation. That every single person would do that to show that they were a good Jew. They even had uh, places in their houses that would be for this ritual washing. Uh, They would specifically set aside a place because that's what good Jews did. Except Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that as he comes into the meal. And we're going to see that Jesus is doing this to press on something he knows is true about the Pharisees. So let's look at what he says. Jesus says to them, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus uses the picture of a cup, washing a cup or a dish, and he says, You Pharisees, you're like a cup that's washed on the outside but not washed on the inside. Now, if you ever wash your dishes, you know that that is problematic, right? A cup can look clean, but if the inside of it is not clean, it is not very useful for keeping whatever you want to drink clean. Now, before we get into what Jesus is saying here, I think we need to step back and make sure we know what he's not saying, because very often what Jesus says here is taken in the wrong way. Uh, What people think is because he's talking about a cup and there's an inside and an outside of that cup and he's talking about washing the inside and the outside of that cup and he's comparing it to the Pharisees that the point of comparison for Jesus is the outside of the Pharisees and then the inside of the Pharisees, right? That their outward actions are clean but their inward hearts are not clean. That is not what Jesus is saying. And we actually see that because of how he applies this idea to the Pharisees in the very next verse. He says, but now for what is inside of you, be generous to the poor. In other words, he says, it's not really about what's inside your heart here, buddy. It's about what's going on outside that is not clean. You have a certain set of ideals that you keep clean, but there are other things that you do not keep clean. 
Now, why do people get this wrong? Well, first of all, I think it's easy to stumble into if you're making the comparison between insides and outsides of cups. But I think there is also sort of a sinister, sinful desire in each of us that really wants to keep our faith kind of to ourselves and internal. We want to mean well so that we can justify the way that we act. We want to say, I really intended to do the right thing even though I didn't do the right thing. But that's not what Jesus expects. He says, actually, Pharisees, your cleanliness is only in certain parts of the law, certain parts of your piety, and not in other parts, and that's what actually makes you dirty on the inside. So, to summarize what Jesus is saying, he's saying one way that we selectively apply the law is we do what is noticeable. Right? What does he compare? He says, you do this ritual washing thing, everyone can see it, and everyone can check the box and say, look, there's a good Jew. But what do you do? Do you give to the poor also? The poor who many will not notice that you gave to? No, you neglect that because people don't notice that. People don't give you pats on the back. People don't check the box when you do that. And this is the first challenge of legalism. When we take religious or social or cultural or familial or personal rules and we pick and choose those rules that are most obvious to other people and follow those, to the neglect of other rules. Now, I want you to think again through those five categories. How could that look? Of course, in a moral religious context like this, it could be the person who shows up for worship every Sunday and is volunteering on the side and is generous with their offerings, things that we can all notice. They're pleasant to talk to. They they make a lot of references to Jesus in their conversation. All good things. But how quickly we can do those things and neglect the things that are less noticeable. The things that happen behind the closed doors of our house or our bedroom. The things that happen behind the closed doors of our vehicles or in the closed doors of our minds. We're very likely to see these noticeable things as worth doing instead of the things that aren't as noticeable. Jesus continues down this path. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint rue and all kinds of other garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the law of God. Here Jesus makes a comparison. He says the tithe, 10% of your wealth that you are supposed to give to the, good, uh, the work of the church, you do that. In fact, you go to your spice rack and you figure out what a tenth of your spices are and you tithe that, but you neglect justice and the love of God. The second way that this, uh, this legalism can manifest in selective law is by doing things that are easily measurable. Right, a tithe is very easily measurable. You can figure out what exactly 10% of your wealth is. That's an easy thing to measure. Justice and love, very hard things to measure. How do you know how much love you are showing? How do you measure that? How much justice have you shown this week? What are the units to measure that? But see, our temptation is we want to do the things that are easily measurable because those things, again, we can check the box and say, look, I'm following the rules rather than doing the things that are not easily measurable. Again, what does this look like in each of our contexts? For a moral person, religious person, here's a good example. Your offerings. 10% of your offerings as a tithe, that's an easily measurable thing, an easy way to say, I'm a good person. Show up every week for church. 52 out of 52 weeks, you're here. Easily measurable. And it's not that those things are bad. They're very good things. But they're easily measurable. 
which can lead us to want to do those things rather than the things that are harder to measure. The love and justice that we show to people who are poor or who we don't normally hang out with or people we don't really get along with, that kind of love and justice, that's hard work and it's immeasurable work. How are you going to know if you've loved a person who needs your love enough? You maybe never will. But Jesus says that our temptation is to go to those easily measurable things rather than the hard things. He says we want to do this. We want to be selective about which of God's laws or which of the laws of our culture or our family or our society or ourselves. We we like to be selective about these laws because we like to be noticed. Look what he says in verse 43. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. We want other people to think we're good. That's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to justify ourselves before everyone else. And Jesus says, Woe to you, if that's how you think. If you're really concerned with what people think about you and your behavior, whether it's on the basis of God's law or your family's expectations or your boss's expectations or your expectations of yourself, then woe to you. See, we're selective about the law because we want to look good. We want to look good. Because every one of us has an inborn desire to look good. We were built to be good, very good, God said, when he created human beings. But in sin, we were corrupted. And so we're left with that desire, that knowledge that we should be good, but an inability to carry it out. And so we will adjust the standard any way we can in order to get as close as possible to looking good because we know we're supposed to and we know we can't. Jesus says this has a a negative effect too. Uh, He continues in verse 44 by saying, Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. I mean, this is arguably the most brutal thing that he says in this entire text. And he's saying really two things here. First of all, he's saying, you're like a body that's underground that no one knows is there. And people just walk over it without thinking twice about you. If this is the way you live, if you're living just to look good, you are of no benefit to anyone ever. Right? You are doing a whole bunch of things that ostensibly look good, but are contributing nothing to the well-being of other people. You might be able to check a box, but it doesn't count for anything. And secondly, he's saying, you're making everyone else unclean in the process. If you remember, Old Testament law stated that if you came in contact with a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. You weren't allowed to come into the worship life of the church. So if you walk over an unmarked grave, you are unknowingly becoming ritually unclean in their society. In other words, he says, you Pharisees, when you live this way, not only do you make yourself of no good to anybody, but you also harm people in the process. You lead them to think of themselves as less because they're not living up to your made-up standards. You're getting guilt on people. You're making them think that they're not worthy of God because of some standard that God never, uh, never attested to. To fill in a blank, this kind of selective law makes us harm our, or excuse me, hinders ourselves and harms others. It hinders us in that it makes us useless to the world around us and it harms others in that it leads them to feel that they're unworthy for God. So that's the first manifestation, selective law. The second is undue burdens, undue burdens. Uh, Jesus continues by speaking to the experts in the law after one of them addresses him and says, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. 
Now, before we get into what Jesus says next, I do think this is interesting to meditate on, right? Because the teachers of the law, they're offended by what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. And I think that's because they, like everyone else, really don't want a confrontational Jesus. They don't like this Jesus who's getting up in people's personal space and calling them out for their behavior. And they're saying, hold on, hold on, buddy. I was doing just fine by myself. You realize you're insulting me when you say that? But isn't that how we are with Jesus? Jesus speaks to us, challenges us, calls us to a life that is not like our old life. And we say, hold on, buddy. I'm really comfortable with how I, I live right now. I don't really want you to challenge me to live differently. I don't really want to be uncomfortable. I want to live the way that I want to live, and I want you to get on board with it. Well, Jesus is having none of it, right? What does he say to them? You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. I think two things in this, two undue burdens that Jesus is touching on when he says this to the teachers of the law. The first is speaking law without gospel. Speaking law without a gospel. Speaking the rules that God gives us, life according to the rules, without the promise of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. This is common in both churches and in our personal life. Because here's what we all believe, the law is going to change people. We believe that if people are going to be better than they were yesterday, the way we're going to get them to do that is by telling them what the rules are. And by telling them if they don't obey the rules, then something bad is going to happen to them. And the truth is, that works for a little while. If you give somebody a law, they might follow it, but not because they want to. Nothing about them internally is changed. They're just following the law because it's the law, because they fear punishment. And yet this is exactly what the teachers of the law, the experts in the law, were doing. They were saddling people with all the rules of God without giving them the promises that God also attaches to those laws. They would say, be perfect, like Jesus said. They would say, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, worship God only, do not even covet your neighbor's house or possessions. And then people would go home and think, okay, that's what I got to do to be good. But I don't know if you've ever tried it, but being perfect is really hard. And people would fail. And they would be saddled with those burdens on their back that I am not a good enough person, I can never be good enough. And they do one of two things, trap themselves in the constant cycle of trying to do something they continually know they're going to fail or they just give up entirely. Those teachers of the law gave them the, pro or gave them the commands of God, but not the promises of God. And then he continues a second way. Um, excuse me. Speaking law where God has not spoken. The undueness of the undue burdens is often that we make rules where God has not made rules. While speaking law without gospels is taking, take, uh, gospel is taking God's actual rules and applying them to a person, but just failing to remind them of the promises of forgiveness in Jesus, oftentimes we are tempted to put extra rules on top of what Jesus has given us. They're going to look different in different contexts. In churches, it can be often how a person talks or how a person dresses or how a person is raising their children or how a person worships. Or we can look at other churches and say that they're not good because of this or that characteristic of their life together. 
Or it can be anything in those other four contexts that I listed. That a good person is one who posts this on their social media. A good person is somebody who spends their money like this. And those are all good things, presumably, but they're not what God has said. We put these undue burdens on people. You need to be like this in order to be good, in order to be acceptable. But God hasn't spoken that way. And so we get our two manifestations of legalism. On the one hand, we can be selective about what rules we like from God. Or, on the other hand, we can put undue burden on the people that we are speaking to, whether by our standards or by applying God's standards without the promise of salvation. Now, the beautiful thing about this text is as clear as it is in those two things, it also includes for us a case study, a way to test yourself and see if you're understanding what Jesus is getting at. And it's right here in verse 42. When Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect the justice and law of God, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Not what we expect Jesus to say there, is it? We might expect him to say, you guys are doing this tithing thing, but don't worry about the tithe anymore. I came and I fulfilled the law. What matters now is that you love your neighbor. Except that's not what he says. He says, you need to do love and justice to your neighbor and give a tithe. He doesn't back down from the 10% command of our wealth to the work of the church. And I think many Christians believe that that is not what he's saying. I mean, they, they would believe that, well, the tithe, that's an Old Testament thing. We don't need to worry about that. That's not our problem. It sure seems like Jesus is holding on to the tithe here. And so here's where the challenge comes. Do you need to tithe or not? And the answer is both. On the one hand, God does give you the command. He gives you the law and says what a Christian does is they give of their wealth to the work of the gospel. And 10% is the number that God prescribes for us. And yet, you don't have to. Because the gospel is that Jesus fulfilled the law, and therefore, you do not have to do anything to earn his love or his favor. There would be pastors who would preach that if you give a tithe, then you're going to unlock some extra blessings of God, or God's going to love you more, or you're at least not going to be displeasing to him. All false. Your status is in Christ. And what God thinks of Christ, he thinks of you, whether you give 10% or 100% or 0% of your income. And yet, Jesus says, give a tithe. So do you have to or not? Both. And it's going to irritate just about every one of us. Because we want it one way or the other. Either Jesus, don't hold us to any standard, or hold us to a standard. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. You don't understand that the way I work is completely different than the way the world works. While you want to fit everything into your systems of rules that you can live up to in order to be good enough, I say the rules don't matter, and yet they totally matter. And this is why it's beautiful. Because on the one hand, if you have God's rules without his promises of his unconditional love, then you are trapped in the tyranny of needing to pull it off. No matter what the standard is, whether it's a tithe or it's loving your neighbor or it's being faithful to your spouse or whatever it is, you're stuck. I have to do this in order to be good. But if, on the other hand, God's law doesn't matter, then you are stuck in the tyranny of doing whatever your desires are. There may not be a standard that God has given you, but you'll make up a standard for yourself. And it'll be based on what you like and what you want, and that will be just as tyrannical. But the beautiful message that God gives us is that both are true. Follow God's law, 
perfectly in every single aspect. But I can't. Exactly. Thank God for Jesus. Now, because Jesus loves you like that, follow God's law perfectly in every aspect. But I can't. Exactly. Thank God for Jesus. And now that you know the love of Jesus, follow God's law perfectly in every single aspect. I think you know where this is going. The beautiful message of God's law and gospel does not leave us in the tyranny of our own desires or the laws that we make up for ourselves, but puts us into the freedom of knowing that we don't have to, and yet we have a perfect guide for how to actually be a blessing to other people. Rather than simply doing whatever feels good or whatever is easy or whatever is noticeable or whatever people will pat us on the back for, God says, here is a holistic way to be a blessing to other people, and you don't have to do any of it, but I empower you to do it. You're so free. So let me press this on you a little bit. Whatever the standards are that you're trying to live up to, the standards that you put on yourself for how you're supposed to look or how you're supposed to live or how you're supposed to raise your kids or how you're supposed to have these sorts of things at this place in your life, those standards that your family has for you, those expectations that you know are lingering from your parents or from your siblings or from your extended family, those standards that the culture has for you, dress this way, look this way, be this type of person, say the right words, the standards that you might expect socially from your friends, here's what it means to be a person that I want to hang out with, or even God's law, that you have to follow God's commandments, you're free from all of it. You don't have to do any of it. In fact, if someone's holding you to it, woe to them. It might be you who's holding you to it. It might be somebody else who's holding you to it. Woe to them. And now go do it. Go live God's perfect law, knowing that you have been perfected in Jesus. So, really quickly, how do we do this in really practical terms? First of all, we all admit that we're all legalists. We all are. You don't get to escape this one, right? Even if you don't say, I have rules, your rule is that you don't have rules, and you're trying to follow that rule that you made up about not having rules. You're all trapped. Thank God for Jesus, right? Remember that Jesus washed us both inside and out. When Jesus tells the Pharisee about the cup and the dish and how they wash the outside but they don't wash the inside, he uses a very specific word. In their culture, it was a very common word, but it came to be a very important word to all of Christians, and that's baptism. He says, you baptize the outside of the cup. And while that's not good when it comes to the way the Pharisees were behaving, it is so good that Jesus baptized the outside of you because it wasn't just a little bit of water on your head that washed you for a moment. It was God's word that sanctified you all the way through. It said that whether you're good or bad, whether you live up or you fail, whether you've made a mess of your life or you're holding it together pretty well, you are mine. I baptize you. I wash you inside and out. Your status cannot change because I have called you my own. I have brought you into my family and put my name on you. And in the same way that you who have children love your children all the same, whether they behave well or not, because they are your family and you have put your name on them, God loves you the same way. And he frees you to say that because I love you unconditionally, you can go be a blessing to other people. How do we do that? We put God's law in the rightful place. The old theologians talked about the law as really doing three things. The first was just to show us the way that we ought to live. Right? This is what it means to live a good life. It's like the blueprints to the building. 
If you build the building according to the blueprints, it's going to stand. If you don't, it's going to fail. If you live according to God's law, generally things are going to work out for you. If you don't, generally they won't. The second purpose was to show us how sinful we are, to tie us in the knots of our own legalism so that we can't do anything but cry out to Jesus, to show us how hard it is to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And then finally, to show us how to live as a blessing to others in the freedom of the gospel. Notice none of those are make myself good, make myself right, make myself acceptable, make myself clean, make myself noticeable. That's not how you use the law. Use it to show you the way, to show you your failure, and to finally show you the way to be a real blessing to people. So to finish off today, I want to go back to that text we read earlier from, uh, from Colossians chapter 2. In it, I want you to see again what Paul is saying now in light of everything Jesus has taught us in the gospel lesson. That we've been baptized with a circumcision that is not with human hands. There's no cutting off of any skin in your bringing into the covenant. There's a little bit of water that buries you and raises you with Christ to a new life. And so you're free to not have to listen to the rules. Do not taste, do not touch. Or the rules of the, of the, excuse me, of the religious culture to have a new moon festival or a Sabbath day. You're free from all of those things. But you're also free to do what is good. To bless real people with real blessings. Let's look back at what Paul says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, don't follow the natural inclination we all have to live according to the rules because Christ is the fullness of the deity in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. There's nothing left for you to do. There's no thing you can add on to your status with Christ because he is head over every power and authority and you are in him. In him you were circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in the same way that a child is brought into the covenant through circumcision, all of us are brought into the covenant through baptism that throws off our old self and makes us a new creation to do what is good. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You know, the greatest verse maybe in the whole Bible is Romans 8, 1, where he says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no one who can say against you, you are not good enough for God if you are in Christ. He's taken away that legal indebtedness and put it on the cross And he made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities, the spiritual forces around us. And so therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality is found in Christ. And do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Here he says, if you are going to live this way by the law, then you are going to disconnect yourself from his body, the church. You are no longer going to be a blessing to the group of people whom God has called you to express your faith with. And so he says, don't follow, don't follow those laws. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. 
Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Summary statement. God loves you all the way, all the time. And he has given you direction on how to be a real blessing to people. Don't use that direction to be your self-justification mechanism. Let Jesus justify you and then love your neighbor. Let's pray. God, thank you for the law which completely disarms us of all of our self-salvation projects. In its place, put Jesus, who frees us through our baptism to an unconditional love that actually makes us a blessing to others. We no longer have to live for ourselves or for our status or for people to notice us, but simply out of the freedom of knowing that everything has been taken care of for us in Christ and that we are now free to give everything we have and can do to others. We ask your Holy Spirit to help us believe this, because we don't by nature. And we ask that you would send him also to empower our good works to be blessings to the people who are around us. In your name we ask those things. Amen.